0: Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode
1: 99. My grandfather, uh, he's, a, he's a retired dentist. Uh, he, he is currently 99 years old. And uh, so back in dental school, uh, which I guess was in the 30s, I believe, uh, he he learned uh, he learned the wrong number of human chromosomes.
0: This is complexity scientist Sam
1: Arbisman. My name is Sam Arbisman, and I'm a scientist in residence at Lux Capital a uh, venture capital firm.
0: Sam's current work involves connecting startups with scientists who they might not know could help them advance the goals of their fledgling companies.
1: Uh, And so really my my whole job is really just like this kind of import-export business of knowledge, uh, which is pretty cool.
0: Sam's background is in computational biology, and he earned his doctorate studying how to create mathematical models that can help scientists better understand how complex systems interact. Things like networks and cells and stuff like that. So basically, Sam studies knowledge itself, which is why he likes telling this story about his grandfather.
1: Uh, he learned that there were uh, forty-eight chromosomes within w- within a, a human cell. Um, this was, I think, like in the textbooks at the time, as far as as far as I know. Uh, and it be- and it turned out it was because uh, I guess in the nineteen fifties, someone actually created a better. Uh, imaging technique and and recount it and realize wait a second there's actually only 46.
0: For decades if you trained to be a doctor of any kind or if you worked in any biological science or if you had a textbook that mentioned chromosomes this basic fact concerning the number of chromosomes was
1: well it was wrong. It was taught to to students um not just kind of it wasn't sort of some bit of esoteric knowledge that was only imparted um to kind of people working at the frontier of knowledge. I mean, it was, it was taught to, uh, to medical students and dental students. And uh, yeah, my gra- grandfather learned the wrong number, which is, which is kind of wild. This might
0: surprise you. It surprised me. But Sam told me that it's pretty common for medical students at the beginning of their schooling to be told, half of what you are about to learn will not be true by the time you graduate. We just don't know
1: which half. And this is yeah this is taught I, mean, I think even now they, they, yeah, there's this idea um, yeah, that and I think within medicine, uh, medicine seems to be one of the areas that has most well kind of imbibed this idea uh, that things are going to be changing constantly, and you have to be always aware of this fact.
0: In fact, Sam wrote a book about this fact called the Half-Life of Facts. And the premise of this book is that for every domain, Every silo and discipline and school of knowledge, the facts contained within are slowly being overturned and augmented and replaced. And in medicine, for example, the rate of that overturning is so high that you never really complete your education. Medical school, in other words,
1: never ends. When lives are on the line, you better have the most up-to-date knowledge. You better know the best technique. You, You better know the most accurate information about the human body because otherwise you could make a wrong decision. And so I think this idea that um, the teachers within medical school are constantly uh, just letting their students know that things are going to be overturned is 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 remarkably refreshing as opposed to um, what we might see in other areas where you would say, "Okay, here's the truth. uh, And then you kind of just get blindsided by things uh, that you thought um, were accurate and that are actually now being overturned.
0: My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And in this episode, we are exploring this idea with Sam, this notion that science is a self-correcting system. So it not only continuously adds new evidence, making it so that there are things we know today that we didn't know yesterday, but it never stops attacking the ideas that it already has. It never stops tearing down its own models. So a lot of what we knew yesterday, what we considered factual, well, it isn't true anymore. Sam says these two processes create churn. They create this overturning process that's consistent, but it's also unique from one silo to the next. So, for instance, in physics, about half of all the research findings will be disconfirmed within 13 years. In psychology, it's every seven. Some facts withstand the test of time, and a whole lot do not. So to paraphrase computer scientist Nils Nilsson and historian James Burke, Our explanations and our models of reality, they can only be constructed from the materials at hand, from the facts that are in our current collection and the beliefs those facts support. So when the facts change, and they will, so will our models, explanations, and beliefs. So knowing that, what does this tell us about how to approach the truth and rationality and how to live our lives and stay healthy and who to trust and all the rest? Well, we'll get to that. After this commercial break. Are you hiring right now? Did you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? Did you just sort of pick one of the options out there and post it to one of them? If so, you're not going to find the highest quality candidate. To do that, to get the perfect hire, you need to post your job on all of the top job sites. And now you can do that with ZipRecruiter, Z-I-P Recruiter. They already have 9 million resumes that you can search through right away. And you can add multiple people to your account to make it the most efficient for your team to find the best hire. With ZipRecruiter.com, you can post your job to more than 200 job sites, including Facebook and Twitter, all with a single click. ZipRecruiter's handy website shows trending career fields, cities, searches. Find the candidate in any industry nationwide or post one time and watch your qualified candidates roll in to ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling of emails, no calls to your office, quickly screen candidates, rate them, and hire the right person fast. And if you run into any issues, don't fret, because ZipRecruiter has a friendly and human support staff. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been featured on Forbes, Wall Street Journal, Time Magazine, New York Times, TechCrunch, CBS, and why it has been used by, listen to this, more than one million businesses. So right now, you can get this. Listeners to this show can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash not so smart. That's ZipRecruiter, Z-I-P-R-E-C-R-U-I-T-E-R dot com slash not so smart. ZipRecruiter.com slash not so smart. I am constantly looking for new ways to better understand myself and the world around me. And that's why I love my subscription to the Great Courses Plus. and I really do love this. Let's just step out of this advertisement for a second just to say, I love this thing so much. I, I right now my queue is so full. I'll never get to all of the things that are in it. but I just found something. It's uh, how to visualize math. It's like taking mathematical ideas and equations and concepts and turning them into pure art and visual concepts that really make sense to me. I'm I'm understanding things in math that I never thought I would know. Anyway, okay, go back into the advertisement now. Look, you get unlimited access to information, you get engaging video lectures, and there's only so much stuff. You get psychology, history, science, even things like cooking and photography. And they're all presented by award-winning experts. And it's not just one video. Usually per course, it's 20 or 30 of these things. And now there are more than 8,000 to choose from. And new courses are added all the time. And you can stream them all on your schedule from any device. Right now, I'm watching one, and ooh, this is a good one. How You Decide. The science of human decision-making. It is taught by Dr. Ryan Hamilton, a consumer psychologist. And Dr. Hamilton explores how factors like emotions and social influences and even evolution can affect our decision-making and the tools that we can use to help improve those decisions that we make. Now, you can sign up. And as one of my listeners, you will get a free trial of The Great Courses Plus. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com smart. You're going to love this. Get started today. It's my favorite thing ever. Sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com smart. And again, <laughs> and here's the third time to burn it into your psyche, thegreatcoursesplus.com smart. Now we return to our program. My name is David McRaney, and this is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. The term half-life in physics, to put it way, way too simply, is how long it takes for half of the atoms in a chunk of a specific radioactive material to decay. The time it takes for one atom of, say, plutonium to do this is random and unpredictable, but the time it takes for a cluster of plutonium atoms to decay is constant and it is predictable. The randomness of all the atoms together averages out. So the time it takes for exactly half of the atoms in a chunk of plutonium to decay is called its half-life. According to scientist and author Sam Arbisman, bodies of knowledge like forestry or accounting or anthropology also have half-lives, an amount of time it takes for half of what is considered true in those bodies of knowledge to be overturned as new evidence is uncovered and old evidence is scrutinized.
1: I might not necessarily be able to predict what new scientific discovery is going to occur or what fact is going to be overturned. in the next scientific paper. But overall, there is a shape to how knowledge grows, change, uh, changes, um, spreads from person to person and even becomes overturned over time. And that is sort of the idea of the half-life of knowledge. And it turns out people have actually tried to take that even, even more seriously and, and begun to understand how long it takes for, uh, for facts within a certain body of knowledge, let's say within medicine, to become overturned or, or rendered obsolete. And people have actually even done some calculations to try to understand a little bit more the kinds of things that would look like half-lives for, um, for knowledge.
0: So here are some of these half-lives. Here's some of these rates. In physics, the half-life is 13.07 years. It's 9.38 years in economics, 9.17 years in math, and 7.15 in psychology. And Sam says in his book that the rate of change differs enough that facts can be sorted into three categories. There's the kind that are in constant flux, like the current weather conditions, or the population of the planet, or the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Then there are these things that are extremely stable, very stable facts, like how many fingers are on the average human hand, how many moons does the planet Earth have, the average length of a blue whale. In the middle are what he calls mesofacts facts that change every few years, like how many elements are on the periodic table, what's the fastest speed that we can go, what is the height of the tallest building, what foods and activities are dangerous to your health. And so on. And it's these meso facts that can sometimes cause people to have really strange perspectives on the advancement of knowledge. Not only are your old textbooks just snapshots of what we knew at the time they were written, the advice from your doctor is based on a snapshot of what medicine knew at the time that advice
1: was given for the most part. I mean people read like they 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 read the 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 news of science and say, "Oh, oh, like what I thought was nutritious uh, is now bad for you, or vice versa. Or um, or dinosaurs look very different than how, than how they used to. Or now we have to take care of babies differently. They, they used to sleep on their stomachs. Now they sleep on their backs.
0: Sam says that mesofacts often cause people to feel overwhelmed. And in some cases, they just tune out the churn at some point, happy to live with the facts as they were when they decided to check out and stop updating their knowledge
1: of the world. So I think I mean, certainly I, mean, I, I can understand that urge to like, not be. You don't want to be surrounded by constant change because it can be overwhelming. I think there are a number of things that actually exacerbate that feeling and make it even harder. Um, so one of them is when we're, when we're young, we're, we're treated almost like little generalists. We learn a ton about every different topic. Like You're in, you're in, you're in school, especially elementary school, you're learning about – you're learning all the different sciences, you're learning um, – you're learning English and history and social science, like you're learning all different things. And then, and this persists even throughout high school. And then in college you start specializing and then you might specialize even more if you go to graduate school and you end up learning more and more about less and less as you go on. And so even though in your area of specialty, you're probably well adapted to realizing, Oh yeah, things change. And like, I just kind of have to stay up to date. So let's say you're a physician, you have continuing medical education, um, cause lives are actually at stake. And so you really want to know the the best way to, to, to treat people. Um, but if you're not, but if, if things are changing outside of your areas, you often still have the ideas from when you were in elementary school or middle school or even high school. And those are almost static until of course you're actually confronted by, let's say your kid comes home from school and says, guess what? Dinosaurs look sort of like fearsome chickens. They're not these kind of slow plodding reptilian monsters. And you're like, what, when did all this happen? And it turns out, of course paleontologists didn't stop working. They they didn't like take this hiatus between element between your elementary school and, and your child's elementary school. They were continuously learning new things and changing, but you only perceive that change in a very kind of staccato stepwise fashion um, because you're confronted by the next generation learning some new things.
0: Even though facts are changing at a regular pace in most silos, if it isn't in your area, if it's not in your line of work, you don't get the news usually until something big changes, like, Pluto is no longer a planet, or we can now clone sheep. These seemingly sudden shifts in what is true, what is possible, are something Sam calls fact-phase transitions. Other examples include going from no knowledge of exoplanets to the fact that they exist, not knowing DNA's structure to knowing it, no airplanes to the invention of the airplane, no smartphones until the unveiling of the iPhone. In each case, for most people the shift seemed rapid and instantaneous, going from one world where one thing was or was not true to another where it was the opposite. And just like Burke and Nielsen said, who I quoted earlier, with these new facts, people must adjust their beliefs and their models of reality to accommodate. So it can really feel inside this like a phase transition, like you're going from one state of truth to the other. But underneath these changes there's almost always a continuous process of fact overturning
1: somewhere. While there are these rapid changes in what we think to be true uh, or what we know to be true. So for example, um, whether or not anyone has ever walked on the moon, um, up until 1969, the answer is no, no one has walked on the moon. Uh, After 1969, the answer is yes, people have walked on the moon. And so this is a very (laughs) discontinuous change about the world. But it turns out there was this underlying parameter that was actually fairly, uh, fairly smoothly changing, which in this case was the, uh, kind of the the top speed that people could achieve. Uh, we could kind of go faster and faster on horses then cars, then, uh, in airplanes and then in spacecraft. Um, and, and eventually we're going to hit a speed where we, um, we will be able to actually go to the moon. Um. And and, uh, I don't remember the exact details, but I believe, uh, I think the U.S. military had graphed some of these top speed changes. And based on this kind of smooth parameter, we're actually able to fairly reasonably predict when people would land on the moon. And I believe this was done maybe in the earlier mid-50s, so like I would say over a decade before um, America landed on the moon.
0: One of the reasons that people often have misconceptions about how science works and really how knowledge accumulates and changes, is the way they learn of new developments. The core of science overturns pretty slowly, and some things are almost static, like the number of continents or the way the heart pumps blood. Most of the news, though, that you get about science isn't about the incremental changes to this kind of knowledge. It's about shocking, weird, and extreme changes from the very edge of our understanding. These are often small, single studies, and as such, they'll likely be torn to pieces
1: within a few years. And when they are, well, that will make headlines too. When a new scientific finding occurs, that's at the frontier of science. That's where we know the least, but where the most exciting things are happening. But it also means necessarily that a lot of that stuff is going to be overturned because that's where scientists are operating. That's where they have all their debates, and they're kind of going back and forth and really trying to understand what should be the consensus about what is going on. and for scientists and they want to work at that at that frontier that's it's awesome it's really really exciting it's It's super cool to kind of see that constant churning of knowledge. But when it's portrayed in the news as guess what like a thing we thought was true a year ago has now been overturned, that can be a little overwhelming to people, even though of course the, the core of knowledge is not changing nearly as much um and actually this was this was brought home to me when uh, I was talking to uh, there's a professor of mine from back in grad school um i was uh, visiting him and speaking with him. And he, he gave me this great, he told me this great story where he said that um, he was teaching a course and I think uh, he went in and lectured on a Tuesday about some topic. And then uh, the next day read some paper that, that actually invalidated the thing he had, learned, that he had taught the day before. So he came in on Thursday to the class and he said, remember what I taught you on Tuesday? It's wrong. And if that bothers you, you need to get out of science. And he was, was essentially saying that like, science is constantly in a draft form always obviously much more at the frontier than at the core, but we need to recognize that I'm almost a revel in that. And we need, and that if we don't have that scientific mindset, it's going to be constantly overwhelming. Now, of course, even among scientists, it's probably much more overwhelming when it's your own research that's being invalidated as opposed to someone else's, or you are invalidating someone else's research. But I think at, at the core, whether you're a scientist or not, this idea of kind of the scientific mode of thinking that science is less a about a body of knowledge and more about a method of querying the world. Um, I think that's the kind of thing that people really need to internalize. Because once you internalize the fact that science is a means of querying the world and understanding it better, the individual facts they can change, they can be overturned, and that's totally fine because it means at every stage we're learning more. Uh, and, and this is actually goes back to a, another thing I mentioned in my book where uh, uh, Isaac Asimov, the uh, science fiction writer, he was uh, corresponding with someone and that this person was saying, uh, like, we used to think the, the world was flat and now we don't. Um, therefore, how can we know anything is true? And he's like, well, and we used to think the world was flat and then we thought it was perfectly spherical and now we kind of know it's like this, like, ablate spheroid. But if you think all, like, if you think thinking the world is perfectly spherical is just as wrong as thinking the world is flat then like then your view is just is like more wrong than both of them put together and like because there's this constant iterative almost like asymptotic approach to the truth now of course along the way there's going to be a certain amount of mess and i think and scientists love that like they they revel in this messiness that's the reason you you want to be a scientist but uh but but as time goes by assuming science as dis a, as as a, as a as a discipline as kind of an endeavor is doing its doing its thing properly we will slowly but surely kind of asymptotically approach the truth and that i think is super exciting um, and i think that's the kind of idea and mode of thought that we need that we need to spread beyond the realm of science
0: There's this other point that Sam makes that I think is really important, and it's this. Because science is always churning and always replacing old facts with better ones, sometimes pseudoscience and alternative medicine and mysticism and religion will shake their heads at that whole enterprise as if to say it's inconsistent and therefore it can't be trusted. Why live a life based on these sorts of facts, Or base an institution or practice on them, if those facts might be overturned. If indeed we have a system for knowing about when they will be overturned.
1: There's this idea from the philosophy of science called the uh, the pessimistic meta induction of science. I believe that's the term. Which the 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 idea behind that is, uh, yeah, we think we know we like we 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 know the world and we understand it really well. We have a really good handle on kind of theories to explain what's going on around us. Um, But guess what? So did every previous generation. And it turns out they were wrong. And so there's kind of this this, pessimistic meta-induction, this idea that you can't really know if we're at sort of the end of knowledge um, because everyone previously to us um, has said the same thing. And they've been wrong. On the other hand, though, and I think this is the the most important point, is that, yeah, that might be true in terms of kind of the frameworks that we use to understand things. um, But just because it's important to have a certain amount of intellectual humility doesn't mean that we should conflate intellectual humility with a state of almost like willful ignorance, like just because we might not necessarily be completely correct about the world. And maybe we need to actually modify our theories and tweak things. Um, that I think humility and, and skepticism and, and desire to kind of caveat out things and be rigorous, um, should not be confused with this idea that therefore, because things might not be completely true, therefore at any point everything might be totally wrong. And I think that's when we really get bogged down in, in that debate. Um, and so I think, I and mean, certainly we should be skeptical. And maybe our theories, I and mean, we should constantly be testing our theories. And, and frankly, I mean, the be, the best way to to really make your mark as a scientist is to actually overturn some really well established idea. So it's not as if there is a lack of scientists trying to kind of um, refute things or, or be uh, uh, suitably skeptical. But at the same time, though, even though we should be skeptical, we should still recognize that the kind of the state of the art ideas and models and theories should still be used. We shouldn't necessarily say that these things, even though they might be falsified, therefore should just be thrown out um, in advance of anything like that. Um, And I think, uh, and I think too often when people get into these debates, they kind of they wield the fact that science is a self-correcting enterprise, which is a good thing, as a reason for therefore throwing everything out. And I think that's the problem. Um, and, and so you can example, you, like an example would be like Newtonian physics versus Einsteinian physics. Um, like Newton was not completely accurate, but it doesn't mean you can't use that to calculate how, a, how how a ball curves when you throw it or how a bridge works. I mean, it's great because those bridges are not going it. it like very close to the speed of light, and they're not m- massive as like stars. Um, so really, like Newton is almost like kind of like a special case for Einsteinian physics. Um, and I think that's the kind of thing where it's like this constant. And going back to the kind of this like a- asymptotic approach. And of course, I and mean, there are paradigms and there are new frameworks of thinking, but these things are all usable, kind of within their little, um, like with within whatever kind of framework makes sense for them. Uh, and and, I, and going back to what I was saying before, yeah, we I mean. Intellectual humility should not be an excuse for wolf wolf ignorance. (laughs) But we should always kind of try to query what we think is true because chances are it might be outdated. So rather than trying to base our decisions, if we're we're scientists or not, uh, on some kind of half-remembered fact from some magazine you read a decade ago, maybe look it up again. See if it's true. See if something's changed. And I think that kind of approach of saying that what we know and and what we think to be true should be in in draft form uh, and kind of uh, essentially export that scientific mindset, this kind of constantly querying what we think is true uh, and what we believe to be true. Um, I think that is actually a very powerful way to kind of make sure we have the most up to date knowledge um, in terms of how we live our lives.
0: You can keep up with Sam Arbisman over at Arbisman.net. That's A-R-B-E-S-M-A-N.net. His Twitter handle is at Arbisman. And he's got a new book called Overcomplicated, Technology at the Limits of Comprehension. If you like these shows, you can support what we're doing here by going to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. We're currently trying to reach a goal to hire a reporter for the show. And I know we can do it with your help. If you pitch in at any amount, you get the show with no advertisements. That's patreon.com slash you are not so smart. that is it for this episode of you are not so smart podcast you can find links to everything we talked about in this show at you are not so smart.com we are part of the boing boing family of podcasts look at all the other stuff they offer over at boing boing podcasts.com follow us on twitter at notsmartblog. follow me at david mcraney go to facebook and follow what we're doing there it's just you are not so smart the opening music that's clash by Caravan Palace. This music right here this is Banjo Apocalypse. All the previous episodes you can find them at so smart.com, iTunes, Stitcher and SoundCloud. Send your cookies to David at so smart.com and if you are interested in having me come speak, I'm about to finish this book project and start doing that, going around the country to talk about the book and other stuff, just email me. All the stuff's over there at so smart.com.